Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, everyone. Before we start the show, I just wanted to let you know on April 29th to May 1st, we'll be at CrimeCon in Vegas this year. And joining me on Podcast Row will be Team Madness members, Dr. Farzani and our head writer, Ryan. We'd be thrilled if you stopped by to say hello. And if you're interested in going and still haven't bought your passes, go to CrimeCon.com and use code MINDSOFMADNESS to save 10% on a standard badge. I'll also be bringing along some Madness swag for existing Patreon supporters, and maybe something special for anyone who signs up to Patreon at the show. So join us at CrimeCon in Vegas, April 29th to May 1st. I'll also include links in the episode notes. We hope to see you there. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Is it really possible for a person to pack up and disappear without leaving a trace? 40-year-old mother Carol Packman had been living in a toxic household with a husband who physically abused her and was openly having an affair with another woman he'd invited to live with them. Carol had the means, motive, and opportunity to vanish completely and start fresh somewhere else. And for nearly 10 years, that's exactly what everybody thought she'd done. Join me now as we take a look at one of England's most enduring mysteries, the disappearance of Carol Packman. You'll learn how a decade of twisted lies, deceptions, frauds, and schemes came crashing down only after someone finally got too greedy. Before we get into the disappearance of Carol Packman, we need to start where the mystery began to unravel. Eight years after she was last seen by her husband, Russell Packman. On October 21st, 1993, Russell was 50 years old and going by the last name Cosley. As the story goes, Russell had stepped aboard a 41-foot sailboat after asking his solicitor and friend, Anthony Hackett Jones, to teach him how to sail. Anthony, an experienced sailor who knew the waters well, planned to cast off from the southern coast of England to the island of Guernsey off the coast of France. Along for the ride was Russell's partner, 36-year-old Patricia Cosley, whose last name Russell had taken. A friend of Patricia's named Christine also went along for the trip. Together they sailed over 100 nautical miles 
from England to Guernsey's capital of St. Peter Port. Around sunset, they sailed past the 13th century castle guarding the city's harbor and moored their boat. Just several hours later, at 9.40 p.m., the crew set sail again, leaving the Channel Islands under the cover of darkness. Anthony, the only experienced sailor among the crew, was again at the helm. He told the passengers the sea conditions were perfect for yachting and set a course for the French city of Brest, 150 miles to the southwest. But it wasn't long before their perfect yachting experience would take a dramatic turn. Just after midnight, the Guernsey Coast Guard received a distress call. Mayday, mayday, mayday. It was Patricia frantically calling on the VHF radio to report a man overboard. It was Russell, and a rescue operation was soon underway. In the middle of the night, rescuers found their sailboat about five miles off the southwest tip of Guernsey. Three Coast Guard boats arrived and desperately searched for any signs of the missing man. Speaking to the crew, the Coast Guard learned that Anthony had left Patricia and Russell on watch after he'd set the boat's course. It was their job to stay above deck and be in charge of the boat while he attempted to get some sleep before it was his turn to take watch. However, not long after he'd gone to sleep, Patricia also went below deck because she wasn't feeling well. But when Patricia went back up to check on Russell, he was nowhere to be seen. She assumed he must have gone overboard. At 2.30 a.m., an aircraft scrambled to join the search efforts. But when rescuers learned Russell hadn't been wearing a life jacket or carrying any illumination, they knew there was a little hope of finding him in the dark. Their plan was to return to Guernsey and resume search efforts at daybreak. The following day, two more Coast Guard boats joined in looking for Russell, as well as a number of local volunteers with their own vessels. However, by 1.30 p.m., 12 long hours of relentless effort, the search for Russell was called off. He was officially declared missing at sea and presumed dead. The three surviving crew members were taken back to Guernsey and admitted to a hospital where they were treated for shock and distress. Following standard protocol, police spoke to the crew and a sergeant took their statements about the terrible events that had occurred the previous evening. To the sergeant, everything appeared to match up. That is, until he spoke to Patricia. At first, she seemed unconsolable. But when asked specific details about Russell's disappearance, her demeanor changed instantly. Suddenly, she was able to relate calmly and clearly before devolving back into near hysteria, a sequence that was repeated several times. Her behavior didn't seem quite right. Rather than genuine distress, it seemed more like bad acting. Immediately, the sergeant suspected Patricia was lying. But about what exactly? The possibility of murder crossed his mind. Maybe Russell hadn't fallen overboard. Maybe he'd been pushed. Following up on his hunch, the sergeant reached out to insurance companies in England, asking to be notified if any claims had been made regarding Russell. Sure enough, just a few days later, multiple life insurance claims were being filed concerning his death, all filed by the same solicitor who'd been with Russell on the night he died the boat's captain, Anthony Hackett-Jones. In total, there were five claims filed worth about £800,000, 
approximately $2 million US dollars today. A pretty plausible motive for murder, and the beneficiary of those claims would be Patricia. In the beginning, insurance investigators began working the case as a potential fraud scheme, with the possibility of murder never out of the question. As police continued their side of the investigation, they soon uncovered a startling clue. On the same night Russell had gone overboard, someone using the name Mr. Russell had booked a ticket on the ferry from Guernsey back to England. In fact, according to the ship's manifest, the ferry had left the island 40 minutes before the sailboat even left the harbor. Although it was possible, the name was just a coincidence. It was a coincidence that had investigators convinced of foul play, and they soon began surveilling Patricia. In the spring of 1994, five months after Russell's disappearance, investigators followed Patricia as she traveled to the town of Weymouth and entered a pub. When the surveillance team went in after her, they saw her sitting at a table having lunch with Russell Cosley. Immediately, the couple was arrested and charged with insurance fraud. Anthony was also arrested and charged for his role in the plot. Investigators would eventually discover Russell had never even been on board the sailboat the night he supposedly gone overboard. The entire charade by Patricia and Anthony had been a performance from start to finish, and Mr. Russell, who'd taken the ferry back to England, had been in fact Russell Cosley. That very same night, he checked himself into a guest house where he used an alias and pretended to be a writer until the day was caught. In March 1995, Russell pled guilty and was sentenced to two years in prison, while Patricia was given a suspended sentence, meaning she didn't have to serve any time. Anthony was found guilty and received three years. As for the fourth person on the boat, Patricia's friend, Christine, it was believed she was just an innocent bystander and was never charged with any crime. In the days following Russell's disappearance at sea, while he was still presumed to be dead, Police knocked on the door of 25-year-old Samantha Gillingham, Russell's daughter and only child. When they informed her Russell was missing at sea, she broke down in tears. Her feelings of anguish intensified even further when she later learned her father had faked his death, allowing his own daughter to grieve and suffer because of his deception. Russell had never once contacted Samantha to explain his actions or apologize. But Russell's failed insurance plot wasn't the only thing causing Samantha anguish. There was another deep old wound that was about to be reopened as well. When Samantha learned about her father's supposed death, she asked police if they could help her find her mother, a woman named Carol Packman. But the task wouldn't be easy. Samantha had no idea where her mother was. In fact, Samantha hadn't even spoken to her in over eight years. One day back in 1985, Russell and then 16-year-old Samantha came home from a day trip to London to find a note in Carol's handwriting left on the kitchen table. It read, I've had enough. I'm leaving. I'm not coming back. On top of the note sat Carol's wedding ring, and that was the last Samantha had ever heard from her. Legally, Carol and Russell were still married, and police agreed she needed to be informed. So they began searching and kept searching. 
until they discovered no one actually knew where Carol was. She'd completely disappeared. Where on earth was Carol Pakman, a woman who'd apparently vanished into thin air in 1985, who'd been missing for eight whole years? A person, as it turns out, absolutely no one had been looking for. That's until her estranged husband decided to fake his own death in a life insurance scheme. Police knew that in order to find where Carol was, they needed to better understand where she'd been. And so they began looking into the strange lives of Carol and her estranged husband, Russell. After marrying in 1965, Russell Pacman and Carol lived with her family, but her parents utterly detested Russell. Because of the constant fighting between Russell and her parents, they moved out on their own, and Carol stopped speaking to her parents at the encouragement of Russell. Over the years, they rarely heard from their daughter, but each time they did, they were horrified. On one occasion, she called to say that Russell had beaten her. On another, that he had kicked the family dog to death for having an accident inside the house. Both Carol and Russell worked in the aircraft industry as engineering draftsmen. It was a lucrative career for each of them, and it took them all over the world. Canada, Italy, Germany. But while they were in England, they lived in the town of Bournemouth on England's southern coast. Samantha recalls her childhood as one full of excitement, adventure, and endless activities with her father. But amongst the fun, Russell was also a strict disciplinarian who wasn't slow to pull out a wooden spoon if he felt his daughter needed to be punished. Over the years, however, the punishments became more severe, and Samantha claims that at times she was locked in her room for days on end. On one occasion, when she was 14, Russell beat her so badly she ran away to a children's home. Russell was even arrested because of this, but was able to convince Samantha to recant her story and all the charges were dropped. In 1983, after a long stint living and working in Canada, the family returned from overseas and settled permanently in England. It was then that Russell began pursuing a new career by starting a small insurance business with one of his friends. One of his first hirees was a 26-year-old red-haired woman named Patricia Cosley, and shortly thereafter, Russell and Patricia began having an affair. It was during the early stages of the affair when the Pacman family purchased a large, beautiful home in Bournemouth. The deed to the property was held jointly between Russell and Carol. The purchase was ill-timed, however, because Russell's new insurance business venture was turning out to be a massive failure. Before long, he was several months behind on his mortgage payments and they were legitimately in danger of losing their new home. Russell, however, had a solution, one that solved his money problems and also conveniently moved his mistress into his own home. Patricia sold the small flat she'd owned and gave the money to Russell to help make the mortgage payments. In exchange, Patricia was allowed to move in and live with the family at their home in Bournemouth. According to Samantha, the arrangement actually worked out quite well at first. Russell and Carol were constantly out of town on business, and it made sense for another adult to be in the house to keep watch on Samantha. But then, things started to get weird. Over time, it became clear to Samantha that Patricia was having an affair with her father. 
Her parents began sleeping in different bedrooms, and Patricia shared a room with Samantha. But once Patricia thought Samantha was asleep, she would sneak out of the room to join Russell in his bedroom. Carol was also well aware of the affair, and it became somewhat of an open secret amongst friends and neighbors. Understandably, sharing a home with her husband's mistress began to take a toll on Carol. She developed a quick temper and began taking her frustrations out on Samantha. By 1985, when Samantha was 16, mother and daughter were constantly at each other's throats. There were massive fights between the two of them, and they often became physical. Accordingly, Samantha's affections began shifting from her mother to Patricia, which formed a strange new dynamic inside the household. On one side was Russell, Samantha, and Patricia. On the other side was Carol, alone, miserable, embarrassed, and thoroughly determined to get out. By June 14th, she'd completely made up her mind. Carol confided to her next-door neighbors that she was leaving Russell due to the situation with Patricia. That same day, Carol had a routine doctor's appointment, and she even told her doctor about her plans to leave Russell. Comments that were recorded in the doctor's notes. She also had another meeting that same day, a meeting with her solicitor to discuss divorce proceedings and all the related financial matters. That meeting would be the last confirmed sighting of Carol. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Carol was described during her meeting with her doctor and lawyer as calm and determined to move on from her extremely toxic household. So when no one ever saw her again, everybody thought they knew why. The next day, Russell, Samantha, and Patricia left home and spent the day sightseeing in London. But when they got back, that's when they discovered the note Carol had left behind, with their wedding ring placed on top, announcing she was gone and never coming back. Samantha then ran up to her mother's room, where she found Carol's favorite red dress, torn to pieces and scattered on the floor. Looking around, she saw the wardrobe doors flung open, but it didn't seem like any of her mother's clothing, jewelry, or other possessions had been taken. Even her passport had been left behind. Approximately six weeks after Carol vanished, Russell reported her missing. Because of the circumstances, police weren't necessarily alarmed he'd waited as long as he had to file the report. With Carol now out of the picture, Patricia slid straight into the role of Russell's de facto spouse. Four months later, in December 1985, 
A blonde woman walked into the Bournemouth police station with a teenage girl, identifying herself as Carol Packman. Alive and well, she insisted she wanted absolutely nothing to do with her family. And so now with Carol no longer being considered missing, her file was thrown out and forgotten. Forgotten, that is, until police came looking for Carol almost a decade later, after Russell's attempt at faking his own death. Unfortunately, when they tried to track down the officer who had dealt with the blonde, they discovered he'd since passed away. Had the blonde actually been Carol, or was it someone else pretending to be Carol? And who was the teenage girl? Presumably Samantha. However, Samantha swears it wasn't. Because the officer who handled the claim was now deceased, there was no way of knowing what form of identification was used to verify her claim, or if it was even required of her. Whatever the case may be, it was seemingly enough to satisfy the police officer Carol wasn't missing and was alive and well. Investigators looking into Carol's whereabouts now sense deception. With Carol's only confirmed sighting after June 14, 1985, something just didn't seem right. Investigators had to consider the possibility Carol had simply done a fantastic job of disappearing and starting a new life. After all, she had all the motivation in the world to pack up and leave. On June 1st, 1994, investigators interviewed both Russell and Patricia while on bail awaiting trial for their insurance fraud scheme. According to Russell, he'd had very little contact with Carol over the years, and he hadn't seen her in person since she left in 1985. He claimed that in 1990, he received a phone call and letter from Carol asking if he was still with Patricia. Conveniently, he'd thrown the letter away. The only other interaction had also been in 1990, when Carol agreed to sign papers withdrawing her name from their joint property deed. According to Russell, Carol needed to sign the papers in person at a solicitor's office, but when police looked into the apparent signing, they discovered the solicitors hadn't verified Carol's identity in any way. Just like the police station, a blonde walked in, claiming to be Carol, and signed the paperwork. After Russell and Patricia's interviews, both detectives agreed they no longer believed Carol had gone missing. They were convinced Russell had somehow managed to make her disappear. They just needed to prove it. But building a case against Russell wasn't going to be easy. Not only did they need to prove he'd murdered Carol, without a body, they needed to prove Carol wasn't alive somewhere. Fortunately for police, Russell would be sitting in jail for the next two years for faking his death, and time was on their side. In the meantime, police were building up an impressive dossier cataloging all the lies Russell had made about Carol in the years after her disappearance. A different story to anyone who'd ask. She'd left him and gone to work in Canada, Germany, Israel, Switzerland, Malta, Italy, and other places. He'd lied about seeing and hearing from Carol over the years, but that was hardly a crime. It was, however, sinister. By creating the impression Carol wasn't missing, it prevented anyone from ever looking for her. 
damning evidence soon came to light when detectives discovered Russell and Patricia had moved to Canada a year after Carol's disappearance. There, Patricia was fraudulently using Carol's work permit and was asked to leave the country voluntarily or risk deportation. Knowing Patricia had verifiably pretended to be Carol in Canada made detectives wonder if it hadn't been the only time she pretended. Was it possible it had been Patricia who signed the papers at the solicitor's office? Was it her who had walked into the police station? The case as it stood was entirely circumstantial, little more than a string of theories and evidence of bad behavior. Detectives simply didn't have enough until they did. An inmate out of the blue named Michael Lamond claimed Russell confessed to murdering Carol and burying her in a cemetery with the help of two men. As it turned out, Michael and Russell had served time together. Not long after receiving the tip, police received a call from another inmate who'd just been released from prison named Andrew Murphy. According to Murphy, Russell confessed to killing Carol to him too, but his story was different. He said Russell told him he dissolved Carol's body in acid. Despite the discrepancies between the two jailhouse confessions, the Crown Prosecution Service decided to bring the charges against Russell and arrested him in February 1996 while serving his original prison sentence. The decision to prosecute Russell with the evidence they had, or rather didn't have, is actually a bit stunning. Not only did they not have a body, they didn't have a single solid piece of evidence that proved anything, other than the fact Russell seemed like a pathological liar. All they really had were suppositions and testimony from two jailhouse snitches, telling two very different stories. And then there was a third. After Russell's arrest, another prisoner named Andrew Briggs came forward claiming Russell had confessed to murdering Carol with an axe, then dismembering her, throwing her body down a deep shaft in a place called New Forest. Now 53, Russell's trial began in December 1996, almost stopping before it even began. Russell's defense team filed a submission for no case to answer, the UK equivalent of dismissing a case due to insufficient evidence. The judge, however, ruled there was enough evidence based on the informant's testimonies. Without a body, convincing a jury Russell murdered Carol was an exceptionally tall task. The prosecution had a threefold strategy. First, they argued, it was reasonable to presume Carol was no longer alive because at the time, no one had heard from her in 11 years. Combine that with the fact Russell and Patricia's relationship gave him a clear motive for wanting Carol gone. The jury just needed to put two and two together. Next, they introduced a barrage of witness testimony establishing what a con artist Russell was through the myriad of lies he'd told since Carol's disappearance. This was to demonstrate what they referred to as guilty conduct because only a guilty person would be so intent on creating a false narrative of Carol's whereabouts. But the guilty conduct didn't stop with Russell's lies. A lot of it centered around Patricia, too. Patricia's use of Carol's work permit in Canada 
seemed like exceptionally risky behavior. Unless, of course, they knew firsthand she was dead and would never use it again. Prosecutors also proved it was Patricia who walked into the solicitor's office and signed the property paperwork wearing a blonde wig, although there was no proof Patricia had done the same at the police station. The implication to the jury was obvious. The third phase of the prosecution's strategy focused on the jailhouse informant testimonies, a risky move. Jailhouse confessions are always viewed with skepticism. A study from 2004 found that incentivized informant witnesses were the leading cause of wrongful convictions in U.S. capital cases. It's simple math. People who have nothing to lose, but a lot to gain from their testimony, might not be the most reliable witnesses. And at Russell's trial, there were three of them, all with conflicting versions of how Russell killed Carol and three different versions of how he disposed of her body. The prosecution's answer to these discrepancies was extremely clever, bordering on devious. The first witness, the one who said Carol had been buried in a cemetery, was only used to establish that Russell knew Carol was dead and that he'd admitted to killing her. They claimed the rest of what Russell had told them was bogus. The second witness, who said Russell claimed he dissolved Carol's body in acid, was the confession they asked the jury to believe. A tactic used, not because there was any particular evidence supporting his claims, only because Andrew Murphy was viewed as the most unimpeachable witness. Because he was a free man when he told police about Russell's confession, and at the time of the trial, this made it possible for prosecutors to present Andrew to the jury as a witness who had absolutely nothing to gain from testifying. And this is where it gets clever. The prosecution presented the third informant, the one who claimed Russell had thrown Carol's body down a deep shaft, as simply a patsy. They argued Russell had deliberately given him a false confession. According to the prosecution, it was a way for him to create a smokescreen and muddy the waters of the testimony at trial. So instead of his conflicting confessions being seen as damning to the prosecution, they were able to reframe them as evidence of Russell's duplicitousness and evidence of guilt. The prosecution's presentation of the informants was an amazing piece of legal sleight of hand, getting the jury to accept only the parts of the confessions they wanted while disregarding everything else. However, the three informants would later come back to haunt them. On December 18, 1996, Russell Cosley was found guilty of murdering Carol Packman and given a life sentence with a minimum of 16 years. At the time, it was one of only 10 successful murder convictions in UK history without a body. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
After a lengthy appeals process, Russell's conviction was overturned in 2003, after questions were raised regarding the jailhouse witness testimonies. And there weren't just problems with one of the witnesses, there were problems with all three. Informants 1 and 3 were both proven to have received either leniency or benefits which was never disclosed to the jury. In the judge's opinion, however, the testimony of the two witnesses most likely wouldn't have affected the outcome of the trial, since the prosecution had asked jurors to disregard large portions of their testimonies. But the second informant, Andrew Murphy, was a different story altogether, the one they asked jurors to believe. In the years following Russell's trial, it came to light Murphy had previously testified as an informant during another successful murder conviction way back in 1969, while he was a prisoner in Ireland. His previous testimony hadn't been known to the court or the prosecutors at Russell's trial, and when Murphy was asked on the stand if he ever testified in court before, he falsely answered he hadn't. But it wasn't just the legal technicality that called Murphy's testimony into question. It was the content. According to Murphy's testimony, Russell had made his confession to him as they walked around the prison yard one day, saying a detective novel had given him the inspiration for his crimes. He said after hearing Russell's confession, he made sure to write everything down on the back of an envelope. But what defense investigators would later discover when they looked into his Irish testimony from 1969 was astounding. In that case, he'd also testified that the defendant had confessed to him while they walked around the prison yard and that the defendant had also been inspired by a detective novel. It was the exact same story. The appeals judge decided if this information hadn't been known at the time of the trial, Russell's legal team would have been able to thoroughly discredit Murphy's testimony, and based on that, Russell's conviction was overturned and a retrial was ordered. It's no surprise that during Russell's retrial in 2004, none of the informant's testimony was submitted as evidence, as if it never existed. But if it had never existed, Russell would have more than likely gotten away with what has been called the almost perfect murder. Without those testimonies, the decision to prosecute in the first place is doubtful, and certainly without it, would have solidified the defense no case to answer pretrial submission. At the retrial, however, the prosecution put forward a new star witness, Russell's own sister. Although reluctant to testify at Russell's original trial, in 2004, she testified overhearing Patricia and Russell in a heated argument where Russell allegedly shouted, I killed one wife and I could kill another. Her testimony is believed to be the evidence that sealed the deal in the minds of the jury. And again, Russell was convicted of murdering Carol with his original sentence of life, a minimum of 16 years reinstated. One of the more baffling aspects of this entire saga is that Patricia was never arrested or charged for any of her alleged crimes. Part of the reason is that Russell never implicated her as an accomplice. That is until she broke up with him. In 2014, 10 years after his retrial, 
Patricia officially broke it off with Russell just before he was set to have a parole hearing where Russell did something no one could have predicted. He suddenly confessed to murdering Carol. He now confessed to strangling Carol in their home after a nasty argument and that he burned her body in the garden in a fire that lasted three days. But why was he divulging this now? The answer to that question would soon become apparent. After confessing to murdering Carol, Russell sent two letters to Patricia, professing his love and begging for her to take him back. He also implied that if she did, he wouldn't tell police about her involvement in Carol's murder. But when Patricia never replied, Russell sent a letter to police completely throwing her under the bus, claiming Patricia had given him an ultimatum, kill Carol or she'd leave him. So he said he strangled Carol until she was unconscious with a necktie, but that Patricia had actually been the one to finish her off. Police never gave his written confession very much credence, because to them, it had obviously been motivated by anger towards Patricia for dumping him. Later, Russell made a full retraction of the confessions, including any claims Patricia had been involved. In 2020, at the age of 78, Russell Cosley was granted parole and released from prison, but his freedom would be short-lived because in November 2021, Russell was rearrested for undisclosed parole violations and sent back to prison. Another parole hearing is planned for later this year, where he'll again be considered for re-release. In 1985, Russell Cosley almost committed the perfect murder. For eight and a half years, no one looked for Carol or suspected she might be dead, a scenario that most likely would have continued if it hadn't been for Russell's greed. But what really happened to Carol and where is her body? Because these questions remain unanswered, the story of Carol's disappearance has endured as one of the UK's most notorious mystery for nearly 30 years. A dark secret Russell will likely take to his grave. However, he's surprised us before, and perhaps one day, he'll finally reveal the truth. And now I'd like to introduce you to the podcast, Murderish. Hi, I'm Jamie, host of Murderish, a podcast that gives you a 3D look at gripping murder cases. Just the facts, no banter. By the end of each episode, you'll know who was involved, details of the crime, and the trial. Also featured on Murderish is my personal story about the time a strange man followed me home and entered my bedroom. Listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. That's murder with ish at the end. Murderish. Listen to Murderish on the iHeart app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. 
and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. To listen to the Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at WonderyPlus.com slash madness.